Fantastic. Well, it's my, uh, my privilege this morning to be able to continue our series uh, looking at the book of James and faith that works. I'm going to ask that God would help us today uh, and that he might indeed help us not just to listen but to do as well. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks for this word that's just been read for us. I pray that you would help us to have energy and concentration and that by your Holy Spirit you might change us through what we hear. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, I want to start by asking you a question. What do you think is the biggest charge against Christians? In other words, what's the biggest finger-pointing moment that happens towards Christians um, in the world? What's the biggest hey-you that kind of comes our way? Anyone got any thoughts? Yes, go louder. Hypocrisy. Yes, indeed. If you don't know that, uh, brilliant. Um, You might have been living on another planet and I'm happy to meet you. Uh, I think that's the biggest one. There are all sorts of things that people can can, can throw at us as Christians, but I think the biggest one, the one that possibly also has the biggest teeth, uh, is the charge of hypocrisy. The question is, why are Christians so hypocritical? Why are they so hypocritical? And... uh, I like this little one here, you won't be able to read it, but it says here, I think Facebook should have a group called Hypocritical Christians at their finest. Uh, In other words, we post things that seem to be at odds with what we uh, are about, or or this one, that's a bit more obvious, isn't it? It just says, hypocrite, true. Uh, I like this little sign, uh, apparently outside a church. Uh, This church is not full of hypocrites, there's always room for more. Some part of that kind of, you know, just stirs my funny bone, I think. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting charge. At one level, uh, it's very easy to make, isn't it? Who do we follow? You're going to know the answer to this. You can tell me. Who do we follow? Yeah, good, good, good. Otherwise, Sunday school's just in there. You can go and join them. No, 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 look. Uh, yeah, that's right. We follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus lived his whole life without what? Sin. So at some level, if we're following him, uh, we're going we're gonna to step up, aren't we? Yes? And so at some, at some very fundamental, basic entry level, we're going to fall short of the standard of Jesus, aren't we? <laughs> no, rhetorical, I know, but you're nodding your heads. I love you. You're beautiful. Yes, the answer is yes. Yes, we will. We will fall short of that awesome standard. And so at some level, the charge of hypocrisy will always find a home wherever people are trying to follow Jesus, because we aren't Jesus. Does that make sense? At another level, though, it's a fair charge because, gee, we want to be like him, don't we? And, and I always, I actually think this is a beautiful charge. I'll, I'll, this little sidetrack, just, if I'm only starting, but I'm going to go sidetrack just for one second. I just want you to think with me for one second. I actually think this is a beautiful accusation. How? How can it be? Here's the thing. When people call us hypocrites, the thing that I love is they actually think there's a high standard for Christians. Can you see this? Can you see that? They know that Christians should be behaving in a beautiful, transformed way. Can you see that? And so their throwing at us actually reveals something about what they believe we should be. I actually think that's quite amazing. They know Christians, if they're really being Christians, should be radically transformed by meeting Jesus. Can you see that? And so, oddly enough, 
the charge of being hypocritical reveals the very light and salt that we should be in the world. Can you see that? I think that's amazing. So I think the main reason for hypocrisy coming home to roost is actually a thing that's taken hold called churchianity. You heard of churchianity? Churchianity. Okay, churchianity. It's, uh, it's a religion that only requires you to pay attention to it on Sunday. It's a religion that enables you to still feel that you're the greatest. It's a religion that encourages you to have a mask on Sunday that looks very Christian and to throw it away on every other day of the week. That's churchianity. Sound good? Anyone want to sign up? There are lots of people who are signed up to churchianity. And I think it's our churchianity that lends Christianity such a bad name. What we're seeing today is the challenge between churchianity and Christianity. Christianity will have a faith that works. Churchianity will have an appearance, a mask of some sort of goodness. It won't be heartfelt and it won't be life-transforming. I'm going to read this. You won't be able to read it, but I'm going to read this out and I want you to tell me how long churchianity's been around for. So I'm just going to read this for you. Churchianity loves fun and frivolity and would make a dumb dog in the pulpit who will not rebuke it. Whenever churchianity has ruled, revelry and wantonness have been winked at. So long as saints' days, sacraments and priests have been regarded. Leave the church open, observe saints' days, decorate the altar, sing hymns ancient and modern, put on tag rags and all that goes smoothly with churchianity. But preach the gospel and denounce sin and straight away there is no small stir. In other words, you can have a beautiful church building with stained glass windows, someone dressed up telling you, to observe the saints' days and all, everything else, and everyone will be happy. But if someone stands up and says, you need to repent of your sin, you need to follow Jesus and take up your cross, churchianity doesn't like that at all. Now, how long's churchianity been around? Well, this is pretty interesting. This was actually written by Charles Spurgeon in April 1868. 146 years ago, someone was saying churchianity has got hold of the church. Real Christianity is getting buried by religion. It's been around for a long time. In fact, I want to suggest to you it's been around for at least 2,000 years and that it's actually what James was writing about. In order to get into this topic, I want to uh, establish some foundations. And uh, I thought I'd put a lovely picture up of our foundations getting built uh, up there for our church. These will be spiritual foundations for what we're going to learn today. Spiritual foundations for what we're going to learn today. I want you to open up to the book of James. So we're in James chapter 1. I think it was on page 216. Chapter 1 was anyway. Uh, James chapter 1. And we're looking at verses uh, 19 to 21 just right now. So James chapter 1 says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent 
and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. All right, what do we learn from that? What foundations do we need to put in place? The first thing is, God does the saving. Did you hear what it says? It says, humbly accept the word planted in you. Do you hear what that is? That's not go out and do something. That's receive humbly the word that God has given you. Can you see how that's a passive thing? God does the saving. The second bit there is humbly accept the word that can save you. I said this to my life group the other day. It's so obvious that we miss it. If you need to accept the word that's planted in you to save you, what does it mean you were before it came? Lost. In need of salvation. The default position for humanity is not saved. We were lost. God takes the initiative and he saves those who were lost. That's you and me. Praise God. Secondly, God is seeking righteousness. Did you see that there? Uh, Have a look at verse 20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That is such an old fuddy-duddy word, isn't it? When was the last time we thought about righteousness? Maybe you're wondering how to spell it. When was it the last time we were concerned about it on our hearts? I'm speaking to myself as much as you righteousness isn't really something that kind of is top of mind for us. And yet it says it doesn't bring about the righteousness that God desires. God is seeking righteousness. What does it mean? What's righteousness mean? Because I might just be repeating a turn of phrase that doesn't mean anything. Righteousness means holy, right living. Or it could have a W and another L, couldn't it? Holy, right living. Yes? That's the spelling joke for everyone there. See, holy, yes, very good. Uh, So holy, right living. So what that looks like is the faith that works. That's what we're talking about today. Righteousness is holy, right living. Are you and I passionately concerned about holy, right living? Well, you, you can speak for yourself. I'll speak for myself. Not anywhere near as much as I need to be. Have mercy. And it's righteousness that God desires. So we're actually neglecting something that God desires for us. All right. So what was the hypocrisy that was at work in these churches scattered throughout the world that James was writing to? Basically, Jewish churches that had some Gentiles coming in, but he was writing to them and saying, hey, churches, you need to pay attention to this. What was the hypocrisy that they were in danger of then? Let's have a look. I think the first charge of churchianity, the first hypocritical thing that they do, is listening and not doing. Listening and not doing. Let's have a look and see uh, see where we find that. Have a look with me at uh, James 1 and 22. If you don't have this uh, verse underlined in your Bible... Uh, You might want to underline it. If you've got a phone, uh, just use your uh, highlighter on the front of your phone. It'll stay there. It'll be good. That's a joke as well. Good. Good material. Uh, It says this in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
Do what it says. It could not be plainer, could it? In fact, some of us would like it to be a little bit more tricky because then we could argue the Greek or something and say, oh, what did Paul, uh, Paul, what did James really mean there? Unfortunately, it's so ridiculously straightforward, there's no getting out of it, is it? Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What do we need to do? Do what it says. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. And then have a look at, uh, at verse 25 down here. Oh, actually, I'll read, I'll read through to it. Uh, verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I was talking to uh, the group the other day. This is a Roman mirror, not made out of glass, okay? Made out of polished metal, okay? And in order to see your reflection in it, you probably did have to stare at it intently. Are are you with me? Uh, It's not a perfect reflector but if you stare intently at it you can make your face out and you can make sure that you're putting your eye shadow on the right part of your head or whatever I don't know what you do but uh, but there you go right so there it is a Roman mirror and what it's saying here is God's law his word is like that mirror when you look into it you'll be able to see yourself rightly don't just glance at it however stare into it not, not just stare at the Bible, you'll need to read it, but, but look intently at the Bible and you'll be able to see who you are. It will reveal who you are. The Bible is a book that reads you while you're reading it. Yeah? The antidote, the first response to, ch- to churchianity that Christianity makes is that we should be people who are hearing and doing. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Hearing and doing. Well, here's my suggestion. I want to be really practical with our sermon today. So here's my suggestion. I want you to look at the Bible as often as you look in the mirror. What do you think about that? It's extremely unlikely, isn't it? Some of us will need to get round circular pocket Bibles. Uh, (laughs) Uh, I think this is, I think this is actually a really fun little challenge. And, And maybe you just want to put Quite seriously, maybe you just want to put a little verse on your mirror. Yeah? While you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you're reading, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. When I was young, I used to have Bible verses up all around our house and uh, it, it was really good fun. I'd lie in bed and there'd be a verse there and I'd get up and there'd be one at the foot of my bed. There was one in our toilet, different places. Now, I, you probably think I sound kooky, don't you? If you haven't tried it, I think it's really helpful and it just keeps God's word in front of us. Okay? The other practical thing that we can do, I don't know if you've been aware of it, but we have uh, a reading plan uh, for June and July um, and it just means that there's an encouragement for you to read one chapter each day of the Bible. And if you don't know where to read, you can read from here. Uh, we're going through Genesis at the moment, uh, which has been pretty heavy going if you've been reading that with us. We're about to get into a really good bit. So if you've been slack... Today's a really good day to, to pick it up. In fact, tomorrow is. Today's really hard to read, read. Start reading tomorrow and we'll get into Joseph and he's about to end up in Potiphar's house and it will be really cool. So read. 
trick is, we can't just be people who read it, we have to be people who do it. You're paying attention. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Hypocritical Action of Churchianity, Part 2. Bad language and thinking we're better than we are. Uh, It was very interesting. Hey, Zach, how are you doing, mate? Um, It was very interesting the other day. I was at a conference with all the ministers who are in our region and the Archbishop of Sydney was standing up the front and the Archbishop of Sydney said, you know what's really interesting? When I go to meetings with other bishops from around Australia, he said one of the really interesting things is I'm always amazed at how loose their language is. I was really blown away. He said it's quite marked when we get together with the other bishops from around Australia how loose their language is. I thought that's very interesting. A bit scary at the same time, I think. Bad language and thinking that we're better than we are is something that churchianity will allow you to do, not least of all because you know that you only have to be on show for one and a half hours on Sunday, don't you? One hour if you've got a good church and then you can get out and run away. So Christianity will be different to that. Have a listen to, uh, to what it says here. Have a look with me at verse 26 uh, in your Bibles. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now guys, this is pretty strong stuff, isn't it? It's actually saying your religious observance is absolutely rendered worthless by your failure to pay attention to your tongue. I would think that sounds out of all proportion, but here it is in the Bible. And you know why that is? It says in Luke 6.45 that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You heard that before? Luke 6.45, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here what he's saying is, if your tongue is not under control, if it's speaking forth crude and filthy things, it's actually revealing the trueness of your heart. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, verse 27, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to know what God thinks is awesome? Not shooting your mouth off and looking after widows and orphans and keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. Christianity in contradistinction to churchianity, will say that we need to care for the least and care for righteousness. Now, both of them are a waste of time, aren't they? Aren't they? I mean, if you're caring for the least, they don't have any political power, do they? The least can't pay you back. Why would you bother with the least? Step on the least. How about righteousness? Well, the world will give you a free pass to do pretty much anything you want. So why tie yourselves in knots? Why why bother with that conscience that's nagging at you? Don't worry. Go with the flow. It's all right. That doesn't sound right, does it? Christianity asks much more of you and I 
It says that we need to care for people who we won't naturally care for. It says that we need to matter. We need to think think that righteousness matters when we naturally won't think it does. It comes crashing into us and says you need to have a new life. One that's radically different from before. So the practical thing, number one, is to consider who are the least. You know, in our compassionate value over there, one of the things that we ask is, how are you hearing Jesus' call to love the least? As a church, we're trying to make compassionate one of our values. How are you hearing Jesus' call to love the least? The first thing we have to do is to identify who the least are. It's worth saying that we have widows in our midst. Are we loving them? It's worth saying that there are orphans around us. Do we know who they are? Are we caring for them? We need to consider who the least are. We need to cast off whatever blemishing is a bad word, uh, causing you to be stained or polluted. You know, if if I told you that uh, the building site you were in had asbestos in it, right? You could say, all right, well, I, I won't work there anymore. What if you were compelled to work there in the midst of all the asbestos? What would you have to do if you were going to work there? Sorry, mate? Follow all the OHS guidelines. You need to put some protective clothing on. You need to get a mask on. It's in the air. You'd say, but I can't see any asbestos, so it should be okay. It's just in that, that thing over there. It's the things you can't see that are killing you, yeah? When we're talking about stopping ourselves to being polluted by the world, it's the stuff that we've just decided doesn't matter anymore. I'm preaching to myself here, you know. If if hypocrisy is the charge, I, I need to be aware of that as I preach to you. I'm saying we, church, need to be aware that it's in the air around us. We need to do a better job of filtering it out. Would you agree with me? Amen. Here's a practical thing that we can do to love the least. I found this the other day. I think it's fantastic and awesome. It was in the, uh, in the newspaper. Uh, there's this wonderful lady called Coco Knight. Can you believe that's her name? She's 22, Coco Knight. Coco Knight heard about the situation with uh, asylum seekers in Australia and the fact that the, uh, the way the government organises looking after them means it's very hard for them to find benefits And a whole bunch of the really practical things of life actually become really difficult for them to obtain. And she went, I feel totally disempowered by what our government's doing. I don't know how to help. And so she went and rang up uh, some advocates uh, and and said, what can I do? And they said, oh, precious. Uh, And they said, here's something you can do. You can actually go and buy staples for refugees and if you deliver it to this place here we'll make sure it finds those who are in need and so what she did she started off a website called simple love Uh, i think it's simplelove.com.au here's a list of items i'll have it here and i'll put it on our website today uh, on our facebook page and you can download it and basically i think this is the most practical thing i've ever heard to do you go shopping and you can buy breakfast cereal, cooking oil, rice, noodles, tin fruit and veg, tomato paste, tea, long life milk. You can buy a travel 10 bus pass because it helps people get to appointments. Yeah, You can buy nappies or shampoo, deodorant, razors. 
You put them in a bag and you drop them at a church that like, I'll put on the website and they will make sure it gets to refugees in Australia right now who have need, who I think are the least in our society. I'm going to put this list at the back. I'm going to put it on our Facebook page and I reckon this is something incredibly practical that we can do right now to start helping people. I'm always a bit uh, yeah, at sea, a bit like Coco, when I think about these problems. And here's a really practical thing that we can do. Do not merely be hearers of the word. Do what it says. We're supposed to look out for the least? Sounds like a practical thing that we can do. All right. Uh, hypocrisy challenge number three. This is a really weird one. Showing favoritism. Showing favoritism. Have a listen to, uh, to, what James, uh, to what James says here. Uh, have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That just seems odd, doesn't it? After all, what's the, what's, what's the point of having friends if you can't give them a leg up, you know? Don't show favoritism is what he says. Uh, I wonder, uh, if you're standing at the front with me welcoming and, uh, and we watch uh, a brand new 2014 uh, uh, Range Rover turn up there, all blinged up, nice wheels and everything, and, uh, and then this car here comes in. I wonder, I wonder what our greeting will be like. I hope there would be no difference whatsoever. But it challenges me. Does what things look like, the rich and the poor divide, does that affect the way that I treat people? Do I make assumptions about people based on how they're dressed, how they speak, how long their hair is or short it is or what style it's cut in? Or Do, do you know what I'm saying? Well, here, James goes to town and he says, you treat the rich one way and you tread on the poor and it's the rich who are throwing you in before the judges, you duffers. The duffers is a holy, godly word, you see. Uh, have a listen to, uh, to verse 4. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Whenever you give the special chair to the rich person and you ask the poor person to sit on the floor, you've become judges. You've, you've discriminated against people. That's not okay. What we need to do, on the contrary, uh, is here in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Heard that before? When I was a kid, I actually had literally a golden uh, bookmark. It was really flashy. It was silver. I mean, it was like reflective metallic. And it had the golden rule written on it in gold. I was like, that's really cool. I never understood what it meant, but I thought it was the coolest thing in my Bible. Classic case of hearing, or in this case, seeing, and not doing. I thought it was pretty. I wonder if we've thought that the golden rule is a good idea for someone else. I really wish they were treating me as they want to be treated. 
you know what? All Jesus asks for us is that you extend that to others. He doesn't tell you you get to demand it of others, but you show it graciously to others. Does that make sense? Brilliant. Speak and act, he says in verses 12 and 13, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who, who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a really basic thing happening here. The encouragement is that we would keep the royal law. Christianity will be people who love others as we love ourselves. And my, uh, my little practical challenge here is, what did you do for yourself that you can do for another this week? No, I don't know what that is. I don't know. What, what did you treat yourself to? How did you look after yourself last week? And what could you do in reflecting that to someone else this week? Does that make sense? I've loved myself. How do I love you? And if uh, you haven't loved yourself enough, that's probably a problem as well. But uh, if you can get on with loving others, that'd be great. Okay, fourth one, and uh, this, is the, uh, this is the last one. Uh, the, the big charge against churchianity is that it has a faith, in inverted commas, that does nothing. It might even be able to say the Apostles' Creed with this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ. It can say that, but it makes no practical difference whatsoever. It's a faith that does nothing. Paul, uh, just Paul, James, James cuts straight to the heart here. Have a look at uh, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Right to the heart of the matter. If you're a yap, yap, yapper believer, but you never do anything, will you be saved? Or will you be lost on that final day when God calls all people to account? The stakes couldn't be higher. They could not be higher. Oh. Have a listen to, uh, to what he says here in uh, verses 17 to 18. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. That's pretty clear. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, I will show you my faith by my deeds. James is saying here, you actually want to know if it's rigididge? Terrible word, there it is. If it's legit, 100%, the real deal, you want to know if it's real? You'll see what I do. What I do will reveal the reality of my faith. And he gives two examples. He gives an example of the patriarch and the prostitute. The patriarch is the one that you expect should have faith, right? Now, I don't know if you know the story of... um, Abraham and Isaac, do you know the story? God tells him, after he's become a dad at 99, take your son and sacrifice him on the altar to me. I would have gone, hey God, I've only got one, my wife's 90, I think you've done pretty, something pretty miraculous there. I like the idea of sacrificing, but I think I'll keep him here and we'll put something else on the altar. He doesn't do that. He goes all the way through to putting his son on the altar, raising the knife, and at that point, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham does the best line ever. He says, I'm here, God. (laughs) Awaiting further instruction. 
you could speak now, I would be delighted to hear if you have something else going on. And God says, you've trusted me. If you look up, you'll see there's a ram caught in the bushes over there. Because you've trusted me in this, I will fulfill all the things that I promised to you. Now that's brilliant. The patriarch, Abraham, had faith. Wonderful. Extraordinary faith, I think. Faith in deeds, yeah? Faith to put his son on the altar and raise the knife and... God says, please don't do that. Thank you for trusting me extraordinarily. And then we've got this prostitute over here called Rahab. Now, just so we're clear, are prostitutes righteous? Okay. The idea is it's not supposed to make any sense. There aren't any righteous prostitutes. Are we clear? I know we get so dressed up in Bible land that we think, oh, of course, prostitutes are righteous. No. It's supposed to be weird. But what happened was, in the promised land, when the spies went into the promised land, in the city of Jericho, Rahab had heard that the God of the people of Israel, who were out there across the Jordan River, was going to come and destroy all the people in the land. And she was afraid of that awesome God. And when the spies came in, she said, Ah, you're spies from that awesome God. I'm going to hide you, but I'm going to hide you on this proviso. If I hide you and look after you, you must look after me when you come and trash this joint. Not exactly what it says in the Bible, but you get the idea. And they say, yes, we'll make you the deal. And the reason she did it was she feared God and it led her to act. Faith and action working together. Do you see? In that case, the prostitute was shown to be righteous. She trusted God. And it let her deeds work. This is a great great saying that says, we're saved by faith alone. Have you heard that before? If you haven't, it's a great saying. We're saved by faith alone. It's God's work, not ours. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Okay? It always results in action. Does that make sense? So we're saved by faith, and you could say, oh, that's right, kick back on the cruise ship to glory. You don't need to do anything. And wrong. If you've truly been gripped by faith in the living God, if you realize that he has given you salvation for nothing, you will pour your life out in thankfulness. Yeah? We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's never on its own. The deck chair is not the picture of the Christian life. Christianity has faith and actions working together, always. Always working together. (laughs) Here's the practical thing, you ready? Actually do something you've heard today. That's 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 the put it into action part. Do something different because of what you heard today. What's the difference between churchianity and Christianity? What's the difference? Well, on one side you've got hypocrites, On the other side, you've got faith that works. Faith that works. Have a listen to the way James finishes it here. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May we be a church, a church where not hypocrisy but new life reigns, where you and I live radically different lives because God's word has gripped us saved us and changed us. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. Father, forgive us when the charge of hypocrisy has a stack of weight to it.
Lord, we thank you that Jesus has died for our sins, that he's been raised to prove that price is paid. Heavenly Father, would you help us to treasure righteousness? Father, forgive us where we haven't cared about holiness. Restore that in us. Heavenly Father, help us to care about the least, to watch our tongues. But most of all, Father, save us from being merely hearers of the word and make us doers in gracious thankfulness to you. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.